It's time for episode 537 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM. Recorded Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. Clockwise, four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the tech podcast where we're sagacious about timepieces. My name is Dan Morin, and I am joined across the internet by a special guest host, my good friend, my pal, creator, co-creator of Clockwise and co-host emeritus, Jason Snell. Welcome back, Jason. Hi, Dan. I um, when like like Walt Disney, I believe uh, I'm thawed when necessary to. Is that how it works with him? Did, I, is that what they do? It's just the head, though. Is it just with the head? him? I don't know. Anyway, it's all of me. You got all of oh, me good. here. Happy to fill in for Micah in my role as host emeritus. We appreciate it. And um, we shall put you back in the deep freeze at the end of the episode. But we will also welcome our two fantastic guests this week. To my left, it is writer, photographer, late-nighter, coffee aficionado, Jeff Carlson. Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Although, uh, with the start, I think I'm just going to step back and be real quiet in the corner. No freezing. No heads, please. Mm, depends how well you do. Okay. And, <laughs> That's fair. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. And to my left, it is a frequent uh, clockwise guest. She is a producer and reporter at the Texas Standard, hosts Lions, Towers, and Shields over at The Incomparable, all about old movies, and is the author of the book, iOS Access for All. What doesn't she do? It's Shelly Brisbane. Hi, Shelly. Hello. And uh, down here in Texas, we are just coming out of a deep freeze. So mm. I'm very glad that I don't have the role of being the unfrozen <laughs> We've thought you to be on this yes. podcast. <laughs> Uh, that sounds good. We've all got this down cold. Anyway, uh, let me kick <laughs> things off wow. this week. Um, the Apple Epic case has come to a conclusion? Question mark? The end of a chapter, let's say. And as part of that final decision, Apple is now allowing external links from apps to payment systems outside the App Store albeit with some asterisks. I'm curious to know if you see this actively changing the state of like how the App Store works and customers buying things in the App Store. Do you think this will stave off scrutiny from regulators who are looking at Apple? Or do you think this is basically just like a sop? <laughs> Jeff, what do you think? I think it's it's mostly a sop. I think the real issue is going to be how well other companies can make this an easy process for people. I doubt that there are a lot of people who are like, wow, I just really hate that Apple takes the 30%. Like they don't care. But if I want to get a game and it's not in the App Store, but I have this other way to do it, if it's going to take four or five steps, then that's probably going to dissuade me from doing it. So do I think Apple is you know, encouraging that complication so people will just stick with the App Store? Probably a little bit. In the grand scheme, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference, but I think there might be a few like really loud entities like Epic who will really focus on how how much better it is and people will be like, yeah, but we don't care because it's it's more difficult. I think the challenge here is that oh, Epic is especially guilty of this. I, I, you know, my skepticism about Epic making this about what's right and what's fair when in fact it is about getting more money for Epic, which fine, they're a business. I get it. But that, in the end, what, what they want is to take more of the pie and give less or none of the pie to Apple. And again, just a business decision. But what we've seen time and again with Apple 
is that Apple has decided if you are legally required to be allowed to go outside of Apple's world, that's fine. Apple will tax you nonetheless, thereby making it not financially better to go outside. So the challenge here is barring a court or a regulator saying there's a limit to what a company can charge developers for access to their platforms, which is, I'd say, a much bigger step to take than what we've seen here. Because you're basically telling a business what it can charge or what it can't charge for. And that not to say that it might not happen, but like that's a whole new argument. And I think it's a hard argument to make. And Apple knows it. And that's why Apple's doing this. So when I look at this and I look at the EU potentially providing sideloading access, presumably Apple is going to say anybody who's running software on their on their platform needs to pay 27% of revenue to Apple as a tithe. By the way, they don't do that on the Mac, which is also a weird, like, what makes this different than that question? Um, it might be that the net result is that the only change we see from opening up the App Store is that apps that would have been disallowed by Apple will be allowed because Apple won't have to, won't be allowed to ban them. Um, but beyond that, it may anybody who's looking for economic relief from Apple, that's going to be harder. Not to say it won't happen, but it's going to be a lot harder. And and so I think the, the, the guideline here is whatever change you expect when there's a court ruling against Apple, um, diminish your expectations because Apple will do the absolute minimum required. Yeah, I think uh, from the consumer side, it's going to be very difficult, as I think Jeff alluded to, to get a customer to think about why they might want to click that link and go off Apple's site because Apple, even amongst the other big tech companies, does not have that sort of reputation of being a company that you want to avoid or try to sidestep. Whereas like an Amazon or a Meta, you might be able to make that case as a producer of products that, hey, don't you want to fight the man a little bit? That's not really going to work with Apple so much. And it's also not a time in history when that's a particularly compelling argument for folks. So what else is that? What else is that company going to do to get you off of Apple's site and onto their site, uh, perhaps f provide some other incentives, but just from a straight, hey, why don't you click over to our link and buy it from us instead of Apple? That's a really hard case to make because there's nothing for the consumer in it. And yeah, I think Apple's going to do everything that they can to make it seem like it's a dangerous thing to do or at the very least an inconvenient thing to do. And they've had very good success in doing that in the past. Yeah, I think I agree with all of you. Thank you for your answers. That that I think you kind of all sort of amalgamated the the all the problems here, which is first of all that it's going to be very difficult. There's going to be a lot of friction involved in that process for consumers. Consumers don't really have any skin in the game here, right? It's it's kind of it's not quite a principal agent problem, but it's like they don't care whether Apple or Epic gets more of their money for the most part, right? Those are both corporations and largely they'll be spending the same amount either way. And if they are trying to entice people, you know, companies are trying to entice people to go do business off the app store by offering discounts, that financially potentially hurts them even more, right? If they're like 50% off, if you buy through us, well, and they're still paying 27% to Apple, that's not a great business either. So, you know, there's potential upsides on the longer term if they're talking about recurring subscriptions and stuff and they can avoid giving Apple any of that money, but that seems pretty tricky. Um, and as Jason alluded, Apple is always going to adhere to the letter of the law, but it doesn't mean it's going to make it pleasant and it doesn't mean that it's going to adhere to the spirit of the law either. So, 
I think that there's not a lot of wiggle room in there. And, um, you know, Apple is kind of saying like, oh, you know, you got us on this one thing. Sure, we'll make that fix. But it's not, I think, going to materially change the business. The biggest question is whether this... In some ways, you know, we've already seen Epic has already made announcements this morning that they intend on trying to re-litigate this a bit over the Apple um, response to it. We'll see if that has legs or not. But I do think the biggest concern is still sort of government regulators seeing this as an example of more ways that Apple may be trying to control that platform and making sure it gets its money. And there are certainly cases in which that can be made, but it's going to be a very slow, very difficult process. So... Uh, Yeah, business on the App Store today, probably a lot like business on the App Store yesterday. But thanks for your thoughts on that. Let's go to our second topic, which comes from Jeff. So Apple is reportedly removing the Blood Oxygen app from the new Apple Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2 models to sidestep that lawsuit that temporarily pulled them from the market. So I'm curious, if you have an Apple Watch, do you use or have you ever used this feature? And since all the watch's health features are technically for quote-unquote wellness, not diagnosis – Are there other features such as the ECG that you use or not? Mostly no is the answer because mostly what I'm using here are fitness features more than anything else. Um, The other health alert that I've gotten is the you're in a noisy environment, which when you're at a rock concert or a very exciting play just happened at the football game you're attending. Sort of like, thanks, Apple Watch. I didn't know. Uh, Other than that, I think the, the problem that you're maybe getting at with your question, Jeff, is a lot of this stuff for it to be a true medical feature has to be has to pass scrutiny by medical regulators and so you end up with these features that sound like they're going to be used for real serious medical reasons and in the end it's more like for your entertainment because apple doesn't want to go through the process of or can't pass the qualifications for something like the fda so yeah my answer is i might use some of this data sometimes but i i don't think it's material to how i use the apple watch shelly I think blood oxygen is one of those numbers that we don't think about unless we have had an illness and we've been in the hospital or our doctor's office and they've taken our blood oxygen and they'd say, you're fine or you're a little bit low. I know there was an illness in my family where uh, my my father had his blood oxygen level tested and we referred to it when we were dealing with his health issues. But that's not something that I'm going to look at on my Apple Watch unless, like Jason said, I'm I'm having a, having some symptoms that might be something else and that maybe a lower blood oxygen level would be indicated. But I don't think even a lot of people are aware of how they would use that information if they if they found it. Um, as far as information that the Apple Watch does give me health wise, I have looked at my heart rate in the past few months. I've had some uh, reasons to do that. And, and I know that a lot of people use heart rate as a fitness tracking feature more so uh, for my uses. It's uh, has to do with whether when I'm exerting myself, my heart rate is higher than it should be. Uh, I uh, desperately would like Apple to provide Apple Watch to provide some sort of uh, blood pressure reading, whether it was entirely accurate or not. Even a trend line would be interesting to me because that's an issue that I face in my life. So it's not so much a feature that I do use now, but a feature that were it to come along, I would probably snap up a new model of an Apple Watch right away because I'd love to have some blood pressure information. I do agree that, you know, those sensors, a lot of them are kind of questionable in usage because of the limitations. And I think, you know, as we said, with things like blood pressure and glucose monitoring, these are things that are even more tightly regulated. And so trying to figure out ways to deal with that, um, you know, in a watch, which is not really designed for some of those things is um, kind of tricky as well. 
So, uh, you know, the, the Apple Watch has become a major sort of fitness and health device. And so a lot of these things are selling features of them. Um, and I think a lot of it is also, as, as Jason mentioned, the idea of building sort of this total wellness portrait of you by using information from, say, the blood oxygen center, sensor to compute your VO2 max or what have you. Um, it's using all these different you know, sensors and, and synthesizing data and all of that. So in, in that sense, they lose sort of a, a tool in their toolkit, which is unfortunate. Um, but I think probably most people don't use the blood oxygen sensor very often, uh, certainly not sort of actively in most cases. I don't think this necessarily augurs a big problem for the future of the Apple Watch, but, it, you know... <laughs> It is tricky to get to a point of saying, well, we have to remove this from certain things. And I assume because it's an important ban, they are not removing it from devices that have already been sold, which also makes this a very weird situation overall. Jeff, you want to wrap us up here? Yeah. So I, I, like, I agree with everything you guys said. I think that it's really a niche feature. And I really like what you said about how it's it's also a marketing feature. So people can say, oh, well, this this isn't just doing my heart rate or my steps. This is giving me other data that I can use. I don't think a lot of people would actually use it. And maybe they were surprised that, A, this feature was on the Apple Watch. And I think, at least for me, like I was really surprised that this led to a complete removal of the product from all the stores, which you know now they're back sort of temporarily. And there's talk of maybe there's a software fix or software update that will disable the feature for existing watches. Who knows? But I thought it was just interesting that here's something that maybe if very few people use and yet it impacted a bunch of others, especially for something that, as you all pointed out, uh, this is all just for like your initial screening. Like if something comes up with this or the ECG or whatever, then what you do is you talk to your doctor. You don't go to the emergency room and then they test you with better equipment. All right, that is two topics down, two topics to go, which of course means it's halftime here at Clockwise, and this week's episode is brought to you by Notion. Look, there's no shortage of helpful AI tools out there, but using them means switching back and forth between yet another digital tool. So instead of simplifying your workflow, it becomes more complicated. Unless, of course, you're in Notion. I have used Notion's AI tools to import some of my documents uh, and be able to quickly synthesize information uh, about, say, like all this information about my books that I have. Um, it is a really interesting tool for being able to manage information in like sort of a summary that otherwise might seem kind of difficult to deal with. I know our pal Mike Hurley uses Notion, a Cortex brand, for keeping all of his information straight for his company. And Notion AI helps give him useful summaries of meetings and action items. All of these things are various ways that you can use Notion AI and might help you some save some time, be more effective with all the information you have and be able to like pull out interesting things that otherwise would be really difficult to sort of assemble from across a hundred thousand different documents. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. You can save time and write faster by letting Notion AI handle the first draft, jumpstart a brainstorm, or turn your messy notes into something polished. You can even automate tedious tasks like summarizing meeting notes or finding next steps. Notion AI does all this and more, and it frees you up to do the deep work. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Notion is used by half over half of Fortune 500 companies. And teams that use Notion send less email, cancel more meetings, save time searching for their work, and reduce spending on tools, which helps keep everyone on the same page. 
Try Notion for free when you go to www.notion.com slash clockwise. That's all lowercase letters, N-O-T-I-O-N dot com slash clockwise to try the powerful, easy to use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, which we appreciate. That's notion.com slash clockwise. Our thanks to Notion for their support of this show and Relay FM. And halftime is over. Let me kick it over to Jason. All right. Well, hey, I'm going to summarize everything that you've heard and will hear in Apple Focus Tech Media for the uh, the next and previous uh, several weeks, which is Vision Pro, Vision Pro, Vision Pro, Vision Pro, Vision Pro, Vision Pro, Vision Pro. Orders go up on Friday. It's coming in a couple of weeks. And I just like, let's keep it simple. Are you buying one? If not, you know, if so, why or why not? And more broadly, what would make you consider getting one either now or in the future? Shelley? Well, I, I don't know if you've heard, but it's kind of expensive, a little pricey. Uh, so little that bit. would probably, yeah, it would probably keep me at 3500 out of the store. But I also have a very specific concern about I don't understand the full accessibility story on Vision Pro. We've had a lot of information about the ways that Apple is making uh, Vision Pro features available with accessibility so that if you can't uh, use uh uh, gestures or eye gaze as is intended. Uh, there are alternative methods. And I believe that accessibility exists. And I believe that for some users, it will be sufficient. But without a demo that I could guide myself, I would not feel comfortable that the accessibility features would do what I need them to do, which is basically make it so that when I'm looking at a thing, I'm actually seeing and interacting with the thing I intend to look at rather than my eye uh, blinking in such a way that I've moved that thing. Oh, it's way across the screen now and I can't see the keyboard or whatever. So I would I would need a lot of to know about accessibility. And I guess I'm thinking specifically of if I was to use the Vision Pro as a computer, which is kind of the only way it makes sense to me, because as much as I would love to interact with the entertainment aspects of it and the 3D and the, the beautiful spatial video, uh, those are great things, but I could never get over the price barrier to make the, that a reason that I would buy the Vision Pro. So the thing that would make me want to buy it is if it was a really alternative, cool way to do computing, and I couldn't verify that that was the case without a lot of a deep dive into the accessibility features. Yeah, I went looking in my couch cushions for spare change, uh, and all I found were three Apple TV remotes. So I don't have the money. Yeah, it's $3,500. And there are some products that I would pay $3,500 for. But I think the difference here is technology products that are proven that I understand how they fit into my life. I will pay you know, $3,500 for this Mac mini and studio display because I know exactly what I'm going to use it for. And I know that I'm going to use it every day and that it's going to be worth it. The Vision Pro is obviously a first generation device. And I think that's the thing that holds it back from such a big price tag. I mean, certainly, you know, first generation Apple devices have carried expensive price tags before the Apple Watch, the iPhone. But at the same time, they were also things that supplemented an existing category. You know, people had fitness trackers and occasionally smartwatches uh, before the Apple Watch, and people had cell phones before the smartphone, and you could easily see how that would extend. The Vision Pro is kind of an entirely new category, and that I think makes it a lot harder sell, especially at that price tag. So, having never even had a chance to use one yet, I think that's sort of step one is taking a demo and figuring out. 
is this something that has a, a spot in my life or is this just another piece of technology um, that I will, you know, <laughs> spend a lot of money of and then, and then never use? Certainly as somebody who writes about technology a lot, I'm very intrigued in trying it out and seeing what people do with it. And as an enthusiast of technology, um, that is something that would also, you know, really interest me. But uh, unless I win lottery anytime soon, it's probably not happening until that price comes down. Jeff? Even if it was, you know, $2,000, I want to make sure that it's something that I'm really going to get a lot of use out of. If I buy that and I spend a couple of hours, you know, watching a movie or almost a couple of hours, then I have to recharge it. Is it really worth it? And who knows? Probably not as much. But in the future, I will definitely be more interested, like a lot of people, if the price comes down. I think there are no wrong answers here. I always am brought back to this feeling very much like the early days of personal computing when early PCs, like uh, the earliest early days, like Apple II, Commodore PET, TRS-80 era, where they were very expensive. And there was a real question about whether they had any use at all, right? Everybody was searching around for applications for these things, recipes or balancing your budget or whatever, because nobody really knew what they were for. <laughs> but we knew, we got some sense that they were the future, because I don't think there are going to be many stories that are this justifies the price because it enables me to do X. There might be a few, but like in practical terms, that's not what it is. It's about it's about the future and about getting excited about it. And so if you don't want it now, I think that is perfectly reasonable. You've got to be a very special kind of sicko to to jump on board now <laughs> because you're paying for being in the future more than you're paying for actual use. If you do some smart weighing of value, you're it, it's not going to happen. So thank you all. Shelly? The last question is yours. So streaming is great. It really is. But I don't trust streaming. And I guess I'm wondering, when was the last time you purchased a piece of physical media, whether it's a movie or a TV show or music? And if so, and, and when that happened, did you do that because of some unavailability in the streaming world preventing you from consuming a piece of content that you wanted to consume? Probably a book is the short answer. And I don't think it was necessarily even as a matter of it couldn't get it available in digital fashion so much as I just coveted the object, right? That there was a emotional connection with that specific object that I wanted. And so I, you know, I bought a book because then I can have the physical object, I can put it on a shelf, etc. I get you with the not trusting streaming thing, and I had the the duality of loving it, but also being sort of, you know, at the whims of where stuff comes and goes. And I kind of at some point just decided like to let that wash over me and to just let let things be ephemeral to a certain degree because at the end of the day you have to just be like, you know, it's a it's it's me it's a TV show. It's movie. Like I like it, but like if it disappears from streaming and there's no other way to get it and I really need it, like, yeah, okay, I'll buy myself a copy. But like, how often does that happen where I'm like, I'm in desperate need of watching this and or reading this or listening to this album and I can't get it anywhere? It just, it doesn't happen enough for me to lose sleep over it, I guess. But I can totally understand the idea of like, you know, feeling like you have this library of Alexandria at your fingertips, except sometimes, you know, things aren't there. You can't check them out because somebody already... Took, stole, wanted all the money and sold it for tax write-offs. Uh, Jeff, what about you? Several years ago, I bought 
the Cornetto trilogy, so Hot Fuzz, uh, Shaun of the Dead, and The World's End. And part of that was because the Blu-rays had a bunch of extra material that you couldn't get even you know when you bought it through uh, through Apple. Did I watch it all? No. Is it still <laughs> in a, a you know cabinet upstairs? Yeah. If I watch those movies, do I get the discs out? Oh heck no! That's real pain, and I don't want to have to stand up and get a disc out, and you know, like all of that stuff. So, I get the argument that you should own your your own media and all of that, but the convenience factor is really, really high for streaming, where I can just point to something that I want and make sure that it's downloaded on my iPad or wherever, and then just watch. It's the frictionless. For a long time, I've had the like, if there's a movie or a TV show that I really, really enjoyed, I have bought the discs when they come out, um, especially for TV, like after the season is over, in part because I kind of want to signify that like, yeah, I like this and I'm going to put some more money down. I would rip those those Blu-rays and put them in my Plex server, too. So I've got sort of the on-demand, especially for shows that don't stream re- reliably. I've just got them on-demand. But lately, my, my motivation to buy physical media has been that I have a 4K HDR television, and very little content is broadcast or streamed in 4K HDR. So I buy movies that I really love and TV shows that I really love that are available with a 4K HDR disc release because the bitrate is so much higher and it's 4K HDR. So it's going to be the best quality version of that. Now, to Jeff's point, yeah, there are times when you're like, I don't want to stand up. Oh, it's so hard. But I also (laughs) have actually kind of come to dig the uh, enjoyment of, like we recently watched Lord of the Rings over six nights with my my kids were in town and we were able to do it and it's like a family nesting thing and I love it and when after we came back from New Zealand last year I bought the 4K HDR discs the UHD discs of those movies and we you know there was a a, a real kind of like pleasure in popping the disc in the Blu-ray player. And going through the, you know, FBI warning, which is stupid and I hate it. And that's why I hate discs. But to be like, and now we are in this special place where we are watching the highest quality on on this. And I kind of like that. So the answer, the short answer to the question is Star Trek Strange New World Season 2 UHD. I got that in December. That's the last physical media I got. But those are my reasons. Well, so I famously collect physical media, mostly movies that were made before I was born, but that's not what this is about. This all started when we sold our old car to a family member, and I wanted to play a song that I love called Thousand Dollar Car by the Bottle Rockets. And so I asked my robot assistant to play it, and she would not do so. And after a little more digging, I found that Thousand Dollar Car and the album from which it comes, is, which is the first Bottle Rockets album from 1993, okay, fine, judge me if you will, uh, is not available any longer on Apple Music. It was available as recently as a year ago. And there had been a reissue of that album plus another album. They made a nice set in 2015, I believe it was. And that had been available to stream on Apple Music, and I had been enjoying it. And was really startled that it wasn't available anymore. And it's probably got something to do with licensing. I didn't go back and find out exactly why, but it wasn't available. So I went and ordered myself a CD from the Bottle Rockets, via the Bottle Rockets website from another company that I've never even heard of, but that somehow has this CD available. And it's going to arrive soon. And I'm going to immediately rip it and put it in my music library. And once again, I'll be able to listen to Thousand Dollar Car 
But I'm used to this happening in streaming for movies and TV shows. I, I talked to my sister the other day, and she was talking about lo- watching Lord of the Rings uh, on streaming. And I said, oh, where is Lord of the Rings streaming right now? And she said, oh, it varies. I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> so uh, that 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 uh, continued my resolve to uh, clutch my physical media, including my copies of Lord of the Rings, not the 4K HDR. I do have the older uh, Blu-ray sets. Maybe I should upgrade at this point. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I continue to hold on to physical media. And unfortunately, that now includes music. All right, that's four topics down. Just enough time for a bonus topic. Before we get there, I want to remind you, you can get all our sweet Clockwise merch over at clockwise.social. We've got our fabulous t-shirt, a new embroidered hat, and a phone case, all with the cool Clockwise stopwatch logo on them there. So if you're looking for a way to support the show and to look great while doing it, go to clockwise.social and check it out. All right, bonus topic. This is <laughs> it's a really complicated one. Snow, yay or nay? Jeff? Yay, if I can be inside next to a fire. Nay, if it's in Seattle and I have to drive anywhere. (laughs) I think the answer to your question is clear. I live in California. That is the nayest of nays you could ever possibly get. (laughs) Yay, because I don't ever have to drive or live in it when it's in a, a, a in, in a large form when it, when it comes to texas it's fun and we create snowballs and we throw them at each other and then we go back inside and that's the best kind of snow there is yeah that's about the perfect level of snow as opposed to as i spent yesterday shoveling out several inches of snow and then today I had to scrape frozen sheets of ice off my car uh snow always starts yay in the winter and then quickly devolves into a nay for me so there you go Hey, if you'd like to get ad-free episodes with an extra overtime topic every week, you can become a member of Clockwise. Just go to relay.fm slash clockwise and sign up for just $5 per month or $50 a year. And best of all, you'll help support the show. And this week's overtime topic, we discuss iPad stuff. And with that, we have reached the end of this week's episode. All that remains is to thank our guest, Jeff Carlson. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me once again. And Shelly Brisbane, thank you. It was my pleasure. And Jason, thank you. Back into the deep freeze with you. Um, oh, burr. Yeah. No, I, did, I said snow name. <laughs> yep, snow name. You shouldn't have taken up curling. Now we have to freeze you. Uh, uh. And uh, everybody out there, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And we will see you next week. But until then, we remind you all, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>